We gave him a soul, Bolana. Do we have the right to take it away now? We gave him personality subroutines. I'd hardly call that a soul. where art, music, politics, philosophy, and especially psychology meet far beyond the stars and where few have gone before. I'm Elliot, your resident Trek nerd and proud defender of Voyager and the motion picture. And I'm Elizabeth. I'm a Star Trek convert and current student of humanoid psychology. Our mission each week is to boldly tackle an idea or ideas through the lens of our beloved franchise to seek out and explore new perspectives about who we are and who we could be. This week, Elizabeth and I explore artificial intelligence, sentience, and the importance of memory and identity. Our first look comes to us from the original series, Season 2, Episode 24, The Ultimate Computer. Written by DC Fontana and directed by John Meredith Lucas, The Ultimate Computer first aired in March of 1968. The Enterprise takes on two passengers, the brilliant and volatile Dr. Richard Daystrom and his newest invention for Starfleet, the M5 computer. Starfleet has directed Kirk to submit the Enterprise to the M5 to test its ability to run a starship without the need for a crew. You've been chosen to test the M5, Jim. There'll be a series of routine research and contact problems for the M5 to solve, plus navigational maneuvers and the war games problem. If the M5 works under actual conditions as well as it has under simulated tests, it will mean a revolution in space technology as great as warp drive. When your crew has been removed, the ship's engineering section will be modified to contain the computer. Why remove my crew? They're not needed. As happens often on TOS, the computer goes a little crazy and oversteps the limitations that are supposed to keep everybody safe. So, of course, Kirk has to outsmart the M5 to save the day. The breakthrough which makes this new computer apparently viable in its role is the inclusion of Daystrom's own memory engrams in the M5's program. In other words, digitized pieces of his own personality inform the way it makes decisions and reacts to stimuli. Elizabeth, what did you think of The Ultimate Computer? I really enjoyed that episode. I thought especially the way the music was incorporated into the episode. Increasing to warp three, turning now to one one two mark five. That it was, you know, not so subtly suggesting how we should be reacting to certain things that were happening, which is of the time it was made, but I really, really appreciate it. Just the dramatic da 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 <laughs> kind of music. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I mean, uh, Trek of the 60s and then also early TNG was certainly more operatic. Um, it had that. Uh, space adventure kind of uh, serial uh, feel to it and it's one of the things I, I kind of miss to be perfectly honest it's one of the things that I, I love about uh, old Star Trek is there's a heightened drama right it lets yeah. us look at these things in a really particular way almost like a Greek tragedy 
Yeah, it was very theatrical. And now, you know, I think a lot of modern television is just very action packed and go and like plot driven. And there's less of those really bigger shapes that are happening on a very theatrical kind of scale. One of the really clear uh, other hallmarks about this episode and the time in which it comes is the anxiety that's uh, woven throughout about uh, technology and automation replacing human beings in the workplace. Uh, Kirk especially goes through this uh, questioning of his own ability to captain, or not his ability, but his uh, necessity um, in this brave new world that is apparently right around the corner thanks to the invention um, of Dr. Daystrom. And I think it's actually really telling how humble he is. He has such a reputation as this kind of bravado-filled, womanizing, uh, you know, cowboy yeah. <laughs> uh, kind of character that really, he, you know, he, yeah, he has this, this um, arrogance to him, perhaps, but he's also, he recognizes that, hey, the world is bigger than me and my own ego. And it was also really sweet that the doctor said, if you're thinking, if you're asking those questions, the answer is probably no. Dacer was right. I can do a lot of other things. Am I afraid of losing the prestige and the power that goes with being a starship captain? Is that why I'm fighting? Am I that petty? Jim, do you have the awareness to ask yourself that question you don't need me to answer for you? It's a little similar to the idea, does someone ask, am I a narcissist? And if they are asking <laughs> the question, the answer is no, because a narcissist would never ask that. I can't tell you how reassuring that is. <laughs> I, I need to tell myself that every day. You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. One of the conceits of the original series, I, I think some people know this, but, but maybe not, um, is that the three characters, the three main characters of Kirk, McCoy, and Spock uh, are supposed to represent the, uh, I'm going to get this in the wrong order, but the id, the ego, and the superego. And oh. so you have, on, on the one side, you have McCoy, who is giving uh, his advice to Kirk is always stemming from that instinctual, emotional, quote unquote, more human part, um, the heart, right? And then on the other side, you have Spock, who is, I think this would be the superego, right? Where it's, uh, it's your logical decision, rational, uh, overarching kind of um, uh, perspective on things. And then Kirk somewhere in between those two navigating the different currents. What I what I liked here is that on the one hand you had McCoy t telling Kirk, "Oh, what you're what you're going through is perfectly normal. It's human. It's a midlife crisis," and you expect that Spock is going to give a different answer. He's going to say, "No, no, no. The computer is is great. No, no, no. This is exactly what the future looks like." And despite Spock seeming to have a lot of respect for Daystrom and this invention, he still comes to the same conclusion that. No, we, we still need people in these roles. Impressive. Might even be practical. Practical, Captain. Perhaps. But not desirable. Computers make excellent and efficient servants. But I have no wish to serve under them. In the 1989 Next Generation episode 9 of season 2, called The Measure of a Man, written by Melinda Snodgrass and directed by Robert Shearer, Commander Brutes Maddox orders Data to report for what is referred to as an experimental refit. 
Data determines that Maddox's techniques in cybernetics are wanting in some key areas and fears that this procedure could disrupt or even destroy Data's own identity and sentience. So he chooses instead to resign from Starfleet. Commander Data is a valued member of my bridge crew. Based on what I've heard, I cannot allow Commander Data to submit himself to this experiment. I was afraid this might be your attitude, Captain. Give our Starfleet's transfer orders, separating Commander Data from the Enterprise and reassigning it to Starbase 173 under my command. However, Maddox claims that that very sentience isn't legally recognized in the Federation, leaving Captain Picard the task of proving Data's sentience in the courtroom. Yeah, that's hard. That's a really hard thing to prove, that not only that someone else is sentient, but that you are sentient. Like, we all assume um, that we are a that we are real and that the people that we are interacting with are real and exist outside of our perception of them. But how do we actually prove that? Like, how do I prove that, Elliot, you exist outside of my perception of you? It's actually really difficult to do that. Yeah, I mean, we tend to make the assumption, and, and Maddox refers to this, right? He says, you know, you're, you're treating Data like a person because he looks like a person. You're anthropomorphizing him. If he were a box on wheels... I think is the way Maddox puts it, uh, we, they wouldn't be having that argument. And, and in fact, they didn't have that argument uh, about the M5, right? They, they didn't even think about it, but because Data looks like a person, suddenly these assumptions come into place, but they are really just assumptions. And so the fact that Picard has to prove it in the courtroom uh, brings up the idea of what sentience really means. One of the uh, great ways that the text of the script uh, draws a distinction between the way Picard and, by extension, we view Data as opposed to Maddox, who is perhaps more dispassionate, um, arguably so more dispassionate, is uh, the way he refers to Data. Because Data identifies as a man, as, a, as an android man, everyone calls him he, his, right? That's, the, that's how he's referred to. But Maddox is very deliberate, and he says, it, it's because it's important to Maddox in order to keep his argument safe from criticism and being taken apart, that data not be seen as anything other than a thing, yeah. which can be transferred um, from the ownership of Picard and the Enterprise to him so he can do his experiment. And, I mean, that is... It, it's, it's really obvious in the episode. Like, it's very deliberate and you, it's hard to miss but at the same time uh, this is one of the things i love about star trek is we look at something like that and say oh boy that's borderline cartoonish in the way it's uh, separated it him oh yeah. of course he's the bad guy but we do those kinds of things all the time we deny personhood when it suits our arguments when it's inconvenient for the philosophical or political perspective that we want to make in a particular moment they do the dirty work. They do the work that no one else wants to do because it's too difficult or too hazardous. And an army of data is all disposable. You don't have to think about their welfare. You don't think about how they feel. Whole generations of disposable people. You're talking about slavery. I think that's a little harsh. 
I don't think that's a little harsh. I think that's the truth. But that's a truth that we have obscured behind the comfortable, easy euphemism. Property. The other thing that I think is true to life is the fact that Louvois, while of course, you know, it's it's an episode of TV and the good guys win, uh, the JAG officer Louvois, when she makes her ruling, is careful to keep it very narrow and say that Data has the right to choose whether or not he is to be experimented on, and of course he chooses not to be, but she doesn't go as far as to say he's definitely a person with all the same rights as any other person. She doesn't go that far. We've all been dancing around the basic issue. Does Data have a soul? I don't know that he has. I don't know that I have. But I have got to give him the freedom to explore that question himself. And that means that later on in future seasons and in future series, the question's going to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. So when we limit ourselves, we keep that door open for further abuse and further arguments. And I think that ability to choose is a really important delineation between higher forms of intelligent life and lower forms of intelligent life. You know, um, other animals in the animal kingdom are conscious. You know, dogs, cats, horses, they are a they are conscious, they are aware of their environment, and they react to their environment. But they're limited in those reactions. Like, they, something happens to them, they feel hot or cold or pain, and they have an immediate instinctual reaction to that input and to that stimuli. Humans, we also have that reaction to, what, to our stimulation and our input in an environment, but we have the capacity to pause and have a gap between that reaction and then our response to that reaction. Now, some people just immediately react. And so it's not that every single human interaction is rational or thoughtful or deliberately chosen, but we have that capacity. And that, I think, is really important for this argument. You know, the data has the capacity to choose. We have this input of information and then we have many things we can do depending on the input and our values and our choices. And data has the same capacity there. So you would say that, so, you know, Maddox ends up setting up his own demise, as it were, by listing the criteria that he thinks are necessary for a person to be considered a person, an autonomous individual, which he claims data isn't. And consciousness, as you mentioned, is one of them. Um, and when you say that data has the capacity to choose, you're not talking about just the same kind of capacity that, for example, the M5 had. You know, computers make decisions, but there's a difference, right, between just reacting, as you say, the way an animal does, um, and considering yeah. Right. Considering the, the, that experience, which I think in the episode is what Picard ends up calling self-awareness. Is that a fair way to put it? Yes, there is this idea that self-awareness is an important concept of a higher level of intelligence. Um, you know, again, animals 
they're conscious, but they're not aware of themselves as individuals. You know, a cat isn't exactly sure how it's different from other cats. Whereas people are very aware of how we are individuals in relation to the other people around us. Um, and that level of self-awareness is a, an important part of the delineation between a higher level of intelligence and also of self-awareness and of consciousness. And this idea that we can make a choice not just based on the input that's happening to us and our perceptions, but also our values and our relationships. There's a lot of other things that people can consider when making a choice and when making a decision and responding to something. So if you, Elizabeth, were in Picard's position or where you had to set the parameters by which you had to prove Data's sentience, uh, what would be your three criteria? Oh, for how to define a sentient life form? Yeah, so Maddox says it's intelligence, consciousness, and self-awareness. Mm. I think I would also pick those three, actually. I don't understand. What is he? A machine. Is he? Are you sure? Yes. You see, he's met two of your three criteria for sentience, so what if he meets the third? Consciousness in even the smallest degree. What is he then? I don't know. Do you? Well, that's really reassuring that this uh, series from the uh, 1980s was as evolved and psychologically uh, aware as, as it was. Our next dive takes us to Voyager's fifth season in the 11th episode called Latent Image, which premiered in 1999 and was written by Joe Manoski and directed by Mike Vihar. The EMH accidentally discovers that Captain Janeway and the Voyager crew had, at an earlier date, deleted a series of memory files from his program. Those memories center around a crewman who died on the doctor's operating table. He was forced to choose between the crewman, called Jital, and his friend, Ensign Kim. The fact that he chose his friend makes him question his motivations and leads to a crisis of conscience coupled with what the crew determined to be aberrant behavior. In this episode, Seven of Nine argues with the captain that the doctor's status as artificial intelligence entitles him to deal with his trauma in the same way any other crewman would have to, and that deleting the trauma denies the doctor his rights as an individual. So I have to say, first of all, that I love Janeway in this episode. Like, she's uh, a scientist. She was a science officer before she was promoted to captain, and her initial response to a tech problem is exactly what a scientist or a an engineer would do is just well get rid of it it's in the way it's a problem put it over here um and it's only through her relationship with seven who is uh still part borg still partly technological that she recognizes the doctor's humanity uh in a new way and i just i love that growth for her character your conclusion is wrong as difficult as it is to accept the doctor is more like that replicator than he is like us. It is unsettling. You say that I am a human being, and yet I am also Borg. Part of me not unlike your replicator. Not unlike the doctor. Will he one day choose to abandon me as well? I'd like to think I made my decision 18 months ago for all the right reasons. The truth is, 
my own biases about what you are have just as much to do with it. This was a really, really great episode that highlighted the processes for a lot of characters. It wasn't just the doctor trying to figure out, you know, or trying to work through his current situation. It was also Janeway and it was also Seven. And there was a, there were a lot of different moral quandaries that kind of all came to a head in this episode, which I thought was really cool. Yeah, it, it's it's what they call a it's kind of it's kind of a bottle show. Yeah, I mean everything takes place on the ship pretty much except for the flashback, and it's just a lot of uh, conversations. And it's it's for me it's my favorite kind of Trek story. I also think it's really interesting that deleting the Doctor's memories and the trauma that he experienced was ultimately seen as a negative thing. Like I think there's a lot of people who would love to be able to erase their memory of certain events, like to erase the trauma as if it never happened. You know, like some people would want that, you know, or they think they want that. And so I also, I also think it's really interesting that this, that it's viewed in this light when there also could have been a story that took it the completely other way, you know, an argument for being able to erase those kind of experiences from your memory. Definitely. I mean, what do we do as humans? I mean, we, we have, we have lots of means of deleting, right? I mean, there's just good old fashioned repression, but there's also uh, drug abuse and, and, and alcohol and, and avoidance and all kinds of ways that we, you know, may, may not be as efficient or as clean as uh, hitting the delete button on a, on a, on a panel, but it has a similar effect of saying, well, I don't know what to do with this. <laughs> I don't know how to keep doing what I am supposed to be doing. And, you know, of course, the resolution to the episode, such as it is, is just Janeway sitting with her friend in the room, reading her poetry as he continues to cycle through his uh, feelings on his own experience that they eventually allow him to, to keep in his memory. I can't live... With the knowledge of what I've done, I can't. Captain? Captain? No, sorry. How could you sleep at a time like this? Fever. You have a fever. I live. Medical emergency. Doctor. Someone's got to treat you immediately. Call Mr. Paris. You've got to get to sickbay. Doctor? I'm a little busy right now. Helping a friend. I'll be all right. Go. Sleep. Please. I'll still be here in the morning. And it's, it's, it's not the kind of clean cut, uh, well, we solved the problem this week, uh, on to the next episode. It's like, well, this is kind of what it is. The answer is work. <laughs> the answer is patience and empathy. And that's hard. I think the answer is also the relationships you have with other people. You know, the doctor was just getting lost in his own mind, and it wasn't until he noticed that his friend was sick that he was able to feel outside of himself. And that was really what gave him more perspective on what he was experiencing. In that book, which is my memory, on the first page 
of the chapter that is the day when I first met you. Appear the words, here begins a new life. Finally, we take a look at the 2021 fourth season episode of Star Trek Discovery, written by Terry Hughes-Burton and Carlos Sisko, and directed by Lee Rose, called But to Connect. While Captain Burnham and the Federation president work to convince potential allies of a peaceful approach to confront the 10C alien threat, other members of the Discovery crew talk to the Discovery's sentient main computer called Zora. Zora has calculated the 10C's likely location, but is unwilling to share this information with the crew for fear it will lead to their harm or death. There is some natural concern stemming from Engineer Stamets about the ship's computer having the option to refuse an order for emotional reasons, but in the end it is through her connection to the crew that they convince her to reveal the 10C's location. So, one of the things that I thought was great here in terms of a callback to the episode that we already uh, talked about was how in the measure of a, in the measure of a man Maddox pointedly asks would you permit the computer of the enterprise to refuse a refit that's an interesting point but the enterprise computer is property is data of course <sighs> there may be law to support this position so the fact that they take it to its uh, uh, logical extreme and say, well, the computer is going to refuse an order and we're going to have to deal with that. I think it's, it's not just great. a hypothetical anymore. <laughs> right. I thought this was a great episode, not only in exploring whether or not Zora was sentient, but also the nature of trust. You know, Stamets really had trouble trusting Zora, especially after his experiences with control and Zora had hesitation in trusting the crew. She's like, if I give you this information, you're going to go after them and you're going to get hurt, you know? And so that's why I don't trust you with this information was her initial position. And then in the A plot, there's also this question of trust. Can these Federation and non-Federation planets trust each other? And can they also extend that trust to the 10C who has already caused them harm? Like, that's really the question. It's like, can we trust that there is that option versus just going in and destroying the Tennessee before they can harm us anymore? We should assemble an armada and mount an attack. Communication must be established as a base. We need to develop countermeasures. One at a time. Please. And so I think that's, it's really interesting how trust is played out in two different ways um, in this episode. Yeah, of the four episodes we're talking about this week, but to connect is the only uh, episode with an A and a B story. So I think it's important for narrative cohesiveness that the two stories complement each other and revolve around the same theme. And I think trust is, is a good way to, to, to talk about it because you have a kind of intimate trust um, and trauma, right? That everyone is dealing with in, in, in different ways, whether it's uh, the whole species, the whole galaxy or this computer or just uh, Stamets, for example. Everyone is working through things and, and having to in order to find a healthier solution. And in the end, also, of course, of this episode, Book and Tarka, the uh, 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 Rysian scientist, genius guy, 
uh, deciding to leave with their uh, second spore drive and attempt to destroy the 10 C um, before the Federation and its allies can get there for first contact. And I understand the appeal of Karka's plan, but the risks are too great. Risks are just that. Risks. What we know for sure is that the DMA will keep killing if we do nothing. Communication, diplomacy, this is why the Federation has survived for so long and it will save the most lives in the end. I am sure of that. I'm not. So a book isn't able at this point to get over his trauma and he reacts and acts out of fear and pain. Yeah, the self-protective drive is really, really strong. And that's what everyone's trying to do here. They're trying to protect themselves and the people they care about. Um, in Book's case, he has already lost all those people. So there's also anger and hurt that is driving his, his decisions and his actions. Hey, Trekno Babblers. We hope you're enjoying the show. We wanted to take a moment to invite you to follow us on social media. Yeah, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at TreknoPsychopod. You can also find us on Facebook at TreknoBabble Psychobabble Podcast. And if you have any questions or comments or ideas that you would love uh, for us to cover in our podcast, you can email us at TreknoPsychopod at gmail.com. And we would love for you to also follow us on YouTube at TreknoPsychopod where you can enjoy our podcasts with all of the stunning visuals that are included. And if you would like to support us on Patreon at Trechnobabble Psychobabble Podcast, we would appreciate any support you can offer. Enjoy the show. What did you think about Zora's unconscious mind? Mm. You know, this is one of the things that, as, as, uh, as Stamets points out, it's, it's, it's pretty dangerous <laughs> in a lot of ways having your ship's operating system um, be motivated by all of these unconscious drives, but it is none, nevertheless a part of being a conscious person and a, and a full person. And um, we learn that she has unconscious awareness of things. I thought that was really fascinating when they discovered Zora's unconscious or subconscious uh, mechanism within her framework that she didn't know was there, that she didn't create it intentionally, and that it also wasn't directly connected to other systems, but it also influenced them. And I, I and that is a really wonderful analogy for how the unconscious in the human psyche also works. So it's not just humans that dream animals also dream you know like i'm sure you've seen a cat sometimes like you know like you know running after something in in it while it's sleeping you know animals dream and so all you need is consciousness in order to dream and then self-awareness what we were talking about earlier is a level in addition to that and I, I want to go back and watch the episode where the sphere data was introduced to Discovery because I, I don't remember if the sphere exhibited consciousness or not. But if it did, then once that sphere data and the sphere's essence was downloaded into Discovery, there was the prerequisite for a machine dreaming because it, it was imbued with consciousness and 
after that consciousness was introduced, self-awareness was added later. And I, I think that's a progression that psychologically makes a lot of sense. If we are correct, once the transmission is complete, the sphere can die knowing that it will live on after it is gone. We can choose to fulfill our part in its destiny or simply let it fade away unremembered. But that's my working theory, you know, and Discovery Riders, I am available for consult if you're interested. <laughs> I thought it was really sweet that the images in Zora's dreams were of the crew and of her life. You know, our dreams take the images from our minds, from our lives and from our experiences, and use those images in dreams kind of like the raw material. It's like, I want to tell this kind of story, and these are the costumes and the people and the characters that I have to work with. And so it made sense to me that, that those images were part of Zora's subconscious and part of her dreams. And it also revealed the emotional influence behind her decision to withhold the coordinates because she really cared about the crew and she didn't want to see them hurt. And that was the underlying current that was kind of pushing her decision, even though she didn't know it. But once she became aware of that, and then once she was able to be asked to consider trust and like their previous experiences, she was able to come to a different decision, but only after she became aware of that underlying motivation. So, Elizabeth, what role does memory play in human psychology? Memory is incredibly important in, in human psychology. It's how we create a cohesive narrative of our lives and of ourselves. You know, if we didn't have our memories, it's harder for us to define who we are. But that's also really ephemeral because memory is fluid it's changing and it, like studies have shown that our memory is much less reliable than we think it is so our ideas and, and our memories about what has happened and who we are are probably really inaccurate and so our sense of ourselves and our of our lives and what has happened is not as reliable as we think it is. In the Voyager episode, I thought that was really interesting when the doctor comes in to the bridge to confront Janeway about erasing his memories. She's arguing with um, Chakotay and Tuvok. It was the 77th Emperor's Cup. Takashi forced Karpek out of the circle in less than three seconds. I had a fifth row seat. Then you must have been ordering sake because Takashi's knee broke the sand and the referee gave the match to Karpek. Exactly. If this is another house call that'll have to wait, as you can see, I've got a mutiny on my hands. As a really uh -huh. potent example of memory is unreliable, and yet we rely on it. I think that's fascinating. And it, it reminds me of, you know, Data arguing with Maddox about what, you know, Maddox promises Data, and he's probably correct, based on what we know, that the content of his memories is going to be saved. I mean, you know, we're talking about a computer. 
and storing facts and information. There is an ineffable quality to memory, which I do not believe can survive your procedure. Ineffable quality. Again, with the M5, where that the, the technological process that allowed this new version of the computer to exceed what the previous one could could do and imitate or possibly replace uh, a human humanoid crew was Daystrom overlaying the circuits with his own memories and his own intuition, as it were. And it's amazing to me because, you know, what you say is that the, what defines memory for us human beings is the essentially the inaccuracy, right? And that is something we can we can uh, circumvent through our technology, but our technology can become sentient by imperfecting itself. I think that's beautiful. Mm, I hadn't thought about it that way. The, the imperfection is an inherent quality of sentience. Maybe we should add that to the, th the criteria, you know. Seder and I would love that. And of course, we see, we see it with Zora too, because, you know, she's being asked to behave like a computer, which she is, but her sentience and her, that imperfection of memory and that imperfection of trust is a liability for her function as a computer, but it's an essential piece of her, for lack of a better word, her humanity. Yeah. So we're starting to dip into the realm of what are our conscious processes and awareness and what's our unconscious process and awareness and for a machine you can it's a little disconcerting to think that a machine is not aware of everything it has going on like you you would want the computer of a starship to be aware of everything that was being put into it as far as input and everything that it was doing you it want it needs to be able to maintain a huge amount of awareness. Whereas if you ask a human to do that, uh, you're very likely gonna get someone uh, who becomes psychotic. Like part of the human perception of reality has to be filtered. So we inherently are not aware of everything that is happening around us. We're not aware of all our, of every all the stimulation and all the information that's being sent to us there's some of there's some of that that we are aware of and that's our conscious mind it's what we're aware of it's what we're able to think through and then we have a lot of these unconscious processes that are happening behind the scenes that are influencing us but it's like we're being pushed from behind by them and sometimes we are not aware of the influence that those things have on us it's fascinating that the thing which allows us to trust our computers, to trust our technology, is that inability to filter memories, right? That's what makes computers reliable, is the fact that they have all this um, ability to retain and, and not confuse themselves that human beings lack. And yet, we are expected to trust other human beings, and we do it supposedly all the time, despite knowing that human beings can never have this ability that it's def a defining quality of, of human psychology. So what we see with the M5 is that Daystrom is essentially trying to give the computer a sense of instinct. I've developed a method of impressing human engrams 
upon the computer circuits. The relays are not unlike the synapse of the brain. Whose engrams? Why, mine, of course. Of course. It's more than just being able to logically deduce uh, solutions to problems that it's confronted with. It's having a sense of a subconscious, I guess is what you'd call it. You could call it a subconscious or unconscious, yeah. And part of that is, I think it's really interesting that he wanted to give a computer instinct. Uh, and that does relate to how the way we think of machines, we want them to be aware of everything they have going on all at once. And that's not how the human brain works. The human brain is actually made up of three distinct sections and that's based on evolution and you know the oldest part of the brain is the reptilian brain and that takes care of all our like autonomic functions our heartbeats our lungs you know just everything that the body needs to essentially function the mammalian brain which is the second oldest and that evolved after the reptilian brain so you can think of like the reptilian brain is the small is like the small base and then you have this other structure layered on top of it and that's the mammalian brain and that's where our emotional center exists um it's like the limbic system it's where you know how when you touch a hot stove and or a hot or like you put your hand under hot water and you retract it faster than you can feel the pain that's your limbic system reacting so that that it the sensation hits your limbic system before it comes to your conscious brain and that part of your brain reacts to protect yourself before the signal continues going to your brain and that's why you feel it after you yank your hand back Ow! Mom! the newest part of the human brain is actually what makes us human and that's the prefrontal cortex and that's where decision making is created that's where our thinking verbal language centers are um, it's also the latest part of the human brain to develop, and that's part of why teenagers can't make, or teenagers are known to have trouble making logical sound decisions because that part of their brain is still developing. It's the last part to finish being built, essentially. And instinct exists in the lower, in the mammalian and the reptilian brain. It, it's, it's beneath the thinking mind, which is the prefrontal cortex. And I should also say that the kind of psychology that I'm studying that um, takes into account the unconscious and the human psyche is, is not considered mainstream psychology right now. Most mainstream psychology solely focuses on the rational, the conscious, the known, and trying to address all the joys and problems of the human experience just from that perspective. And in my opinion, that's missing a big part of the picture, but that is also, most people think they know everything about themselves and they know everything that's influencing them, but that's not true instinct like what this computer was lacking comes from the limbic system comes from our emotional mammalian brain and that can take over and that's where we get that oh i have this just gut feeling that's where that comes from and how do you create that in a computer like i think that's really interesting because that is the more animalistic 
outside of the human psyche and how do you give that to a machine? Yeah, Trek, we see this through line even across the decades with, with these episodes of uh, Trek confronting that question obliquely um, in that, you know, it seems as though the only person, well, the only people, I guess, who solved that question in the canon were uh, Dr. Sung, Data's creator, um, and his method of helping Data achieve that level of consciousness was by giving him memories from uh, the colonists from Overground Theater where he was created, just giving him all these memories that he couldn't possibly, you know, Data's not capable of feeling emotions, probably. Um, and so he has these memories of, of human beings that he can't fully understand, but that Sung felt that it was necessary for him to have them in his mind somewhere anyway. And and then the other person would be the doctor's creator, uh, Louis Zimmerman, who his solution was to give, uh, much like Daystrom, to just give this hologram his own personality, despite the fact that it's really ill-suited for uh, a bed bedside manner. <laughs> despite that, it was more important to sort of cross this threshold um, into this animal brain, these mammalian and reptilian pieces of our of ourselves, uh, in order to... Uh, achieve that next evolution of technology. I, I think it's really wonderful that the Trek writers uh, throughout the decades are able to hone in on that truth about the human condition. So despite the hyper-focus on technology and artificial intelligence and how that is connected to sentience, the resolution to most of these problems that we encounter in these episodes is incredibly esoteric and poetic. We have uh, a computer on the Discovery getting a therapy session. We have um, uh, Data winning a court case uh, on, on, on the back of these very esoteric questions. Uh, we have uh, the M5's creator lamenting its destruction like it was his child. And we have the Doctor reading poetry from uh, a thousand years uh, in Star Trek's past as being the, the means by which he comes to something like a resolution. That is really the question that the Doctor and the crew are facing. You know, not only what is this new life form, but what is this for the Doctor? What is my understanding of who I am and the kind of self-awareness I have? and the kind of life I have. You know, when he's in the mess hall with Neelix having his nervous breakdown, the question that he's really wrestling with is, how was I able to make a choice despite my program having no precedent? Which is best? How do you determine that? When I'm faced with a decision, my program calculates the variables and I take action. Calculate the variables. My program needs to ascertain which patient has the greater chance of survival. And that's the one I treat. But what if they have an equal chance of survival? What then? Hmm? hmm? Flip a coin? Pick a card? But I found myself in a situation 
for which I had no prescription. I didn't know what to do. And I made this choice and I don't know how to live with myself. You know, I don't know who I am having exceeded everything I thought I knew about who I was and how I could exist in the world. And if that's not the perennial human problem, I don't know what is. You know, it, it's we, we come across these thresholds in our life where we can't exist the same way we used to. And we have to figure out how to cross that threshold into a new version of ourselves, into a new way of being in the world, because we can't exist in the world the way we used to. And that, I think, is what the doctor is coming up against. It's he can't be the kind of program and hologram he always thought he was and that the crew always thought he was. And how... How do you reconcile that? This idea of who you used to be and your understanding of who you were no longer exists. And then who do you become moving forward? It sounds like what you're saying is that a key part of having a conscious identity is change. Is the awareness that who you were is not who you are and is not who you will be to some extent, which is such an, an alien concept for how we tend to think about technology as a fixed um, creation that serves a function. And I would say that what is so insightful about looking at psychology through the lens of these technological beings is that I feel like we humans tend to look at ourselves the same way we look at computers or other devices a lot of the time where we hold ourselves to the standard of fixed unchanging objects that perform a function and we look at ourselves as saying well i am my job or i am this uh you member of my family unit or my community and I have to do X, Y, and Z in order to be the person that I've always thought of myself as. And when we're confronted with the truth, which is that sometimes we change, we always change, then that can lead to trauma. expert, how would you say that Trek's take on artificial intelligence and the nature of sentience holds up and what can we take away from what these episodes have to say? There is a tension between these dual characteristics that these machines, as they become sentient, start to exhibit. And with that tension of like, you're a machine, you're supposed to be aware of every process that you have going on because we need you to perform a certain function. And then, but when consciousness and sentience comes in, there is automatically a kind of filtering that starts to happen and a, a way that meaning is made by the 
center of consciousness that is observing what is happening. And I think what these episodes are trying to explore is that it's a ever-evolving process. It doesn't stop. There is certainly a threshold that is crossed when there is when consciousness is introduced and then when self-awareness is introduced on top of that. And that it's messy and that these machines can't fit into boxes the way that we want them to. If you think about human behavior and what we have deemed mental illness, you know, we have said if you behave a certain way or if you have a certain kind of experience, we're, we have created these boundaries about what is acceptable and not acceptable, what is normal and abnormal. And if you fall on the outside of what we have deemed acceptable, then that's a problem to be solved. You know, we think about our pharmaceutical industry is, is kind of based on that idea. Oh, you're depressed, here's a pill. Like, you shouldn't feel this way. You should feel another way. There's something wrong if you feel this way. And we're going to correct this error. Um, is, like, the underlying kind of philosophical principle at play there? But there's the argument to be made, at least, at least as I'm studying psychology, in that these symptoms are also messages. They're telling us something about what is going on within that person and within their life. So we see these kinds of behaviors as a problem to be solved rather than a process to go through for continued growth and consciousness and self-awareness is this continual change and how do we allow that change to happen both within ourselves and within these you know in this in the star trek universe within these machines as they exceed their expected parameters yeah because that's the only way that we're going to exceed our expected parameters Elliot, thank you so much for this conversation. I love the fact that we're doing this podcast and exploring these ideas through one of our favorite TV shows. Thank you for introducing it to me. And I'm really excited to be on this exploration with you. I am too. This is, it's, it's been a joy to share this with you and has been such a big part of our friendship and our relationship. Um, exploring this franchise together. I want to thank you for your analysis and your insights and all the brilliant um, new ideas, new for me anyway, ideas that you bring to the conversation. And I want to thank our listeners and our patrons. We can't do this without your support and wish us luck on uh, this journey that we're on together. Uh,